We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. We're going to be looking at Advent. And while you're turning to Genesis chapter 3, Lexi Krieger, she didn't know I was going to do this, so sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. She's been studying Latin, right? And she actually was giving me a little bit of a Latin lesson yesterday. And so I would love for her to share while you're turning to Genesis 3. Lexi, could you share with everybody where that word Advent comes from? Everybody hear that? All right. Thanks, Lexi. I heard it, so I can repeat it for you. So she said there's this word, adventus. Is that right? Adventus? Which means waiting. And adventio, which is to go to. And so they they both come from the same root word in the Latin. And this season of Advent is a recognition that we are waiting. We are waiting on something. We are waiting on someone And it's this like deep sense of waiting. It's not just standing and waiting in line for your coffee. It's like this waiting, longing, hoping for something that will come and change everything for you. And not just waiting. It's not just this passive, but like to go to the one you're waiting for. And so we're praying that this month we would engage in, we would meaningfully and intentionally engage in the season of Advent, going to the one we are waiting for to come and make all things right. And of all years for us to practice the season of Advent, 2020 is a great year for it. Aaron posted this really great uh, thing on the social medias, if you're on that, about that. About, uh, it was just very beautifully written. I'm not going to try to repeat it. She did a great job. You should look at it. Uh, But talking about just how the season really has drawn out this sense of longing and waiting for things to be made right. And that's what the Christmas season invites us into. Waiting on the only one who can make all of those things right. And we spent three months going through what are now my three favorite Old Testament books. We went through the book of Ruth, the book of Jonah, the book of Malachi. And each book was showing us these people of Advent, God's people who were waiting for a long time for a rescuer to come, for the Messiah, the King, who would come and save them and set all things right finally and fully. And so Ruth showed us how God's people were meant to be this light to the nations. They were meant to be a people who showed the rest of creation what God is like, and they were meant to invite others into that. And you see this beautiful picture of Ruth, who is not one of God's original chosen people. She's not in that family of Israel, and she gets invited into it. So that's what it was supposed to look like. And yet, we, we turned over to Jonah, and Jonah gives us this little snapshot, a little glimpse into the hearts of all of Israel, that they were terrible at that that they did not want outsiders to come in and experience the love of God. And then we went to Malachi, where the final book of the Old Testament, we see that God finally has it out with his people. He says, listen, you have not lived up to the call that I've given you. You have not been the people I've asked you to be. And he has it out. Like, there's, there's a problem. But he still leaves them with hope. But he ends the chapter with, there's a messenger coming, and he will point the way to the true hope that is coming the true light of the world. And all things will be made right one day. 
And so we enter this season as we look back on the people of of history who were in Advent, who were waiting for the Christ to come, the Messiah, the rescuing King to come. We recognize we're in our own season of Advent as well, that although Jesus has come into the world, we are now waiting for him to come back and to finally and fully restore all things. But this Advent season, God's people of Advent, it goes way further back than even the book of Ruth. It goes further back than the very first person who the Israelites came out of Abraham. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the whole world. If you're unfamiliar with our symbols up here, this is just shorthand for us to recognize and remember the story of the world that the Bible tells, which we believe is the true story of the whole world. And it's a story that a God who existed before that first symbol, who existed outside of time and space, made all things. And he came down and he walked. That's why it's a down arrow. He walked with his people. And he gave them a calling and a purpose. And they failed at it. So that's our next symbol is they rebel against this God. They turn to do their own things in their own ways. But God gives them a promise pointing forward. And one day that promise comes in Jesus. And then Jesus, though, says, I'm going to prepare a place fully for you. To be continued, I'll be back. So he goes to be with his father. And that's why we're in the second advent here. This was the first advent waiting for God to bring his promise. We're in the second advent waiting for Jesus to return again, come down again, dwell with his people again, make all things new. And that will happen. Because all throughout this story, so far, God has made good on every single one of his promises. But at the very beginning, these first humans entered into a season of Advent. And I want to share some of that story with us right now. If you turn to Genesis, and actually, back up, I told us we're going to be in Genesis 3. I want to read a little bit from Genesis 1 for you right now. Genesis 1 starting in verse 26. This is after God has, we're told God has made the world, the earth and everything in it, the stars and the sky, the sea and the creatures within that. And then verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So hear that. God said, I'm going to make another thing now, another creation, but this one's going to be different. I'm going to let them rule in my place over everything else I've made. There's a special relationship with this creature. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, And it was very good indeed. Evening came and the morning, the sixth day. Why did God have this special, unique relationship with this creature? Because he makes humans in his image. 
He makes them to be these living statues, representations of him to the rest of his creation. And he calls them into this partnership and he says, I am trusting you to partner with me to care for my world. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And out of that, out of that, you see this incredible relationship even between the first two humans. Male and female, he created them. If you flip the page, and if we had the time, we would read in Genesis chapter 2, it zooms in now. That was an overview of the story. It zooms in and says, this is how he did it. And so he creates this first man in his image, and he shows him what the world is like and how it works. And he creates this beautiful paradise for him to live in. But he says, but I want you to extend this. There's a whole lot of other earth here that's like a blank canvas, and I want you to go out and cultivate it and care for it and tend to it. Expand this garden, utopia. But he says, but there's, there's one thing off here. If man exists to represent what I'm like, there's something wrong with him being alone. Because before that first symbol, we know that there's a God who exists eternally in community with himself. And we don't fully comprehend that as human beings, but, but God exists eternally as three distinct persons united as one God. Let that break your brain for a moment, okay? And so what he does is he takes this human, this man who's alone, and he says, that's not good to represent me. Let's make this more like me. And he puts this man in a deep, deep sleep. And most of our Bibles tell us this, that then he pulls out a rib and he creates another human being. And there's been all kinds of like, I remember growing up hearing questions like, so do you think like humans were supposed to have an extra rib on one side? And it's like, what? I don't know. Who, why, do we, why do we talk about this stuff? It doesn't matter. You know, but actually the original Hebrew word is his side. And it's the word that's actually more of like an architectural term that you would say the side of a building. When you're looking at like the whole side of something. I'm not going to argue, like, theologically, was it an actual rib or not? That's not the point. The picture that that's trying to paint is what he does is he splits them in half into two. That out of one, now there's two. And I think about my twins with this. My twins literally started as one being inside the womb. And then they split into two. That's where you get conjoined twins if they don't have enough time to split fully but they split, fortunately for us, into two unique people that started as one. That's what God does with the first man. And now he has a helper who has come out from him, is part of him, and is one with him. And now that they're two distinct people coming together again as one in unity, now they can represent what God's like. Now they can actually bring multiplication into all the world. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Go make other humans now. They can recreate in the image of their creator. It's incredible. I was just having this conversation with, I think it was Amy the other day, asking, uh, we've talked about this before, you might have heard me say, an equation that maybe helps us understand this, this, what's happening here. And it's that diversity plus unity equals multiplication. I stole that from someone else. I didn't come up with that. I'm not a mathematician. There's diversity now between these two distinct people guys created, but he's called them to live in unity because they were one. 
live as one flesh and in their unity as two distinct people diverse from one another, they can now bear fruit. They can now produce and multiply. They can now extend God's goodness to the rest of creation. But then something goes terribly wrong. And this is where we find most of our story this morning. Genesis 3. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. We are never told, by the way. You think I skipped a lot right there, but we are never told where the serpent comes from. You just got to go with it for now. We're going to find out more later though in the story. So hold on. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now God had given, this is one thing we did skip over. God had given a command to the first man. You could eat from any tree, he said, except there's one tree. One tree that promises that you can tell the difference between what's right and wrong. You can know what's good and what's evil. Don't eat from that tree. Why? Because God was there with them and he could tell them what's right and what's wrong. And so the serpent twists that. Did he say, really, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Can you imagine that? What's that sound? Oh, oh, God's here, guys. He's coming to hang out for a little bit. We've never experienced that, have we? Something's changed in this world and we're about to find out what? walking in the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear your words to us this morning. God, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of words used there, a lot of language used, a lot of writing that we don't understand, that is not familiar in our context. And yet, you are very much alive and active through your words, speaking to us today. So God, help us see you more clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. A lie entered into the world. That's what happens at this second symbol. A lie comes in and says, maybe this isn't what's best for you. Maybe there's something more. Maybe God's holding out on you. Maybe, just maybe, you don't need him after all. After all, he, he made you in his image, and so aren't, couldn't you just become God for yourself? And that is a lie that still permeates today. The question of, is God holding out on me? Does God love me? Is he here and near and present with me? And the question of, can't I determine this for myself? Trying to be God over our own lives, determining for ourselves what is right and what is not right. When we started in the book of Ruth three months ago, that was during the time of the judges. And we saw that it said, this was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what was right in their own eyes was a lot of violence, a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice, a lot of family members killing one another, a lot of division, a whole lot of bad that was right in their own eyes. And if we're honest, like the world's not that much different today, is it? If we're honest... My heart's not that much different from that. There are so many things I think are right in my own understanding that are far from what God has planned for the world. And so recognizing that and saying this is not right is entering into Advent and saying, we're waiting for someone to come and make it right. Because in the midst of this terrible lie that answered in the midst of these two first humans believing that lie and destroying the very fabric of creation. The, the way that they were supposed to care for and tend to the garden, it's now gonna produce thorns and thistles. They were supposed to care for the animals and God made clothing for them out of the skins of animals. They suffered because of the human sin. The relationship between man and woman who were supposed to be united as one, instead that division now happened. The diversity without unity caused division rather than multiplication. They saw each other and they were ashamed for one another to see them. And they hid from each other. And that relationship between them and God 
It was broken. It was fragmented. It was shattered. They ran and hid from him. God calling out to them in the day and saying, hey, I'm here. Let's go for a walk again. And instead they run and they hide. And in the midst of that, God gives a promise. Did you catch it? He's a promise. He only speaks a curse twice. One curse is not to a person or an individual. It's, it's about the land. There will be a curse on the land because of what you've done, man. Not a curse to the man, though. Not a curse on the man. A curse to the land. The only curse directed toward a being was a curse to the serpent. Because you've done this, cursed are you serpent. And he gives a promise right there in that moment. There's going to be a problem, hostility between your offspring and the human's offspring. Their children and your children are going to be at odds. But one day, little snake, you're going to slither up and you're going to strike the heel of one of her offspring and her offspring is going to crush your head. Defeat. when God sent those first two humans away out of the garden, out of this utopia that he planned for them, and they can't go back. I don't, I don't know exactly what a cherubim's flaming sword looks like, but it's probably like you're not going to get past it, right? They can't go back, but you got to imagine as they go out and they're working now through thorns and thistles and their bodies start to decay for the first time ever. They start to experience death approaching their door. They have to be holding on to this promise in the back of their head. One day, we're going to have a child. Like God called us to, to be fruitful and multiply. There's going to be one that comes from us that defeats that wicked serpent that deceived us. And they have a child. And they name this child Cain, which actually means brought forth from, and it's a word that's very similar, and maybe we should have had our resident uh, Latin theologian help us out with this, but it's a word very similar to that word seed or offspring. When God gives that promise, the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Cain means brought forth from. It's the same idea. You, You have to imagine that as she names this firstborn son of hers, After the promise, they're thinking, this is it. This is the one who's going to come and rescue us. God gave this promise, and here is this offspring brought forth from my womb. We we came together as one, and we multiply as God called us to, and here's this promise. And if you know the story, you know what happens is that son grows older. They have a second son, Abel, who also grows older. And out of envy, jealousy, anger, fear, doubt, all the things that had entered into the world when those first two humans rebelled against God's word, flooded the heart of this firstborn son of theirs, their offspring, and he murders his own brother. You're supposed to crush the head of the serpent. Not your brother. And all those hopes, that longing, that waiting, that advent must have just been dashed then, right? 
Is this the promised one who would come and rescue us? Very clearly, no. And it's neither of those sons now. One's become a murderer and one is no longer with us. But they have a third son and they name him Seth. And there must be some hope now. Okay, that was rough. But maybe now, maybe now in this this son of ours, Seth, maybe this is where God will fulfill his promise to us. And Seth's probably a, a pretty decent guy, at least compared to Cain. But he makes mistakes too, and he grows old and he dies. And he never battles against that serpent and wins. He, he succumbs to the same problem that the first two humans have, that they are dying because of their rebellion. And so you fast forward through the story and you get God coming to this one man, coming to this one person saying, hey, this whole world's a mess. All of the offspring of the woman where this promise was supposed to come, that there would be a rescuer out of them, all of them are wicked. But Noah, I will call you out from the rest of them and I will save your family and we'll move forward with you. And if you're a hearer of the Torah at the time, if you're an Israelite who's reading that back then, you might've been like, wait, that sounds like, right? That, that sounds like that promise God gave. This is an offspring much later from those first two humans, but someone who's different and unique from the rest. And God spares his life and the lives of his family and he floods the rest of the world. And he says, this is wicked. We need to restart. So you're thinking, yes, this one man, he's going to do it. And he gets off of his boat and he gets plastered drunk and he does some really wicked stuff. And he's seen naked and full of shame, just like the first two humans. Naked, shame, hiding from one another. So it's not him either. And this repeats over and over and over again throughout this Advent season, that first Advent. Person after person, is this going to be the one who finally rescues us, who finally crushes the head of the serpent? No, the serpent has crushed them. The serpent has struck their heel and they have been poisoned with sin and rebellion and they have died too. You fast forward and and God calls this one man, Abram, and he changes his name, Abraham. He gives him a new identity. He says, I will be your God and you will have lots and lots of children. They will be my people. And he builds this nation, Israel, out from them. And he says, I'm going to send my rescuer through these people. Abraham's a mess though too. All of his sons are a mess. Every single king that Israel establishes for themselves is a mess time and time again. There's this one king, David, and he seems like he's got to be the one. Like no other human would have chosen him, but God did. So there must be something special about him that we don't see. And God appointed him as king. And he's called this man after God's own heart, right? And he's probably the best king Israel had ever seen. Probably the best human king that's ever ruled on this earth to date still. And there's this one time that David sees someone else's wife and he wants her. And so he takes her. And then to cover up what he did, because she's now pregnant with his child, 
while the husband was away at war, fighting a battle that he declared as king, he has the husband murdered so he won't get caught. So he's not the guy. You see this pattern? You see this problem? Even the best of them fail miserably. And throughout that whole first advent, God's people just keep waiting, longing, hoping, and going, when? And they keep putting their trust and their hope in someone or something that does not fulfill. How many of you can relate to that today? 2020, especially, like, what what are the things we're hoping for, right? We keep putting our hope and our trust in something to come, and it's going to fail us. If you're hoping for the right political party in power, if you're hoping for a vaccine to come and rescue us all, if you're hoping for that new job, whatever it might be, guess what? All of those things will fail you. It's the wrong thing to put your hope in. It's not going to save you. And this is what God's people had to learn the hard way. Finally, one day, after God has it out in Malachi, you turn the page and you get to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, there's this really exciting thing called a genealogy. You know what that is? It's like your ancestry.com, right? You're 23 and me. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ. That's a Greek word for the Messiah, the anointed one, the rescuing king. Right there, just full stop, right there. I know genealogy doesn't sound exciting, but the Christ, the Messiah, he's here. Suddenly, this genealogy is like, oh man, I want to read this, right? The son of David, right? God gave a promise through this king who was probably the best they ever had, but still not that great. The son of Abraham. God's taking this promise all the way back and saying, yeah, these people I called Israel through that one man, Abraham, I told you I would be good on my promise. I told you I would be good on my promise. There would be one coming from that family who would be the rescuing king of the world. And if we were to flip over to Luke's account in Luke chapter three, Luke also gives us a riveting genealogy and it's much longer because Luke doesn't stop at Abraham. So in Luke chapter three, verse 23, it says this, as he being Jesus began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. There's an interesting thing happening. They're thought to be the son of Joseph because Joseph was not biologically the father of Jesus. Thought to be the son of Joseph. And so then it retraces through the lineage. And you could do the same thing retracing through Mary's lineage. You know you're going to end up the same spot, verse 38, when it says this, because it goes through this long list. The son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. I'm not going to read all of them because I can't pronounce half of their names. And you get to verse 38, son of Enos, son of Seth. You remember that guy? Who's Seth the son of? The son of Adam. The very first person. That promise given, your offspring, your son, your descendant will come and crush the head of the serpent. 
Jesus's lineage in the New Testament is the only lineage that gets traced back to the son of Adam. And then what does it say? Son of God. Adam had no earthly biological father. God created him out of nothing, out of dust from the ground with his own hands and breathed his own breath into him to fill him with life. Son of God. But Luke very intentionally does this with Jesus's lineage, with his genealogy to show us, no, Jesus is the true son of God. He is the offspring of the woman who would come and crush a serpent's head. And the only reason he's able to do it when no other human being could is because he's also the very offspring of God himself. Again, let that one break your brain, right? That God himself, remember existing eternally in three distinct persons, three distinct persons, the one, that God himself the word of God, as John wrote, wrote in his account of the gospel, the very word of God who existed before all things. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. God himself taking on the form of the offspring of the woman to come and do what you and I and no other human being ever could accomplish. That he finally does battle with that serpent. And yes, the serpent strikes his heel and it injects its venom and its poison and it seems like it gets him. He, he dies there hanging on that wooden tree. He's buried in a tomb. Game over, it seems like, right? But on the third day, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when you, you, that was the only way to know for sure someone's dead, dead, because it's the third day, they're still not getting up. On the third day, Jesus rises up out of that tomb. He steps out of the grave in his flesh, in his body that was once broken and is now restored. The one who existed before all time and flung the planets into the sky and formed the stars with his hands became a small little child. And he became the promise given to that first woman, delivered through another woman centuries later. And he overcomes death he overcomes Satan. Listen to this. This is in Revelation chapter 20. We're starting in Genesis. We're going to Revelation. Get a picture of this full story here. Told you we would answer a little bit of who is that weird serpent that showed up. Revelation chapter 20. This is verses one and two. This man, John, after Jesus had come and he died and he rose again, and then he sent his spirit to fill people who would trust him and follow him and obey him as the king over all creation. And he said, trust me, follow my spirit, I'll be back soon. In the meantime, he gave this guy, John, a vision of what that would look like. And this is what he wrote down. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, that ancient serpent, all the way back at the beginning of the world in that garden, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him. If we skip down to verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Jesus's victory over that serpent who is Satan, who is our enemy, who speaks the lies and deceives us from following the truth, who leads us into darkness and turns us away from following God, who is light, he's crushed by the light of the world. And he's tormented. Verse 14, not only that, he doesn't stop there. Verse 14 says, death and Hades also were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death and Hades, that's, that's life no more buried in the ground. That's done with one day because of the promised seed of the woman, Jesus, because he did come, because he overcame death and Hades himself when he stepped up out of that tomb. And in his cosmic power, he has given us his spirit that we too can overcome death and Hades, that we too can overcome sin and Satan that we too can crush the head of the serpent because he's already done it. Not because of us, not because we do all the right things, but because we trust and follow in the one who has already accomplished it and because he's given us his power and his spirit. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is our hope. Revelation 21. After death and Hades and Satan are done away with, John wrote this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's the one that Jesus told his followers, I'm going to prepare for you. I'll bring back. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. What were the first humans in Advent for? What were they waiting for? What were they longing for? I know if one day we get to sit down and talk with them, they'll probably have a whole lot more answers, but three that I came up with. Was, they, were, they were waiting for the world to be made right. It was broken. It had fallen apart. They were waiting for their purpose, their calling, their role as humans made in the image of God to be in full effect again. And they were waiting for them to be reunited with God in his perfect kingdom once again. If it's easier for you to remember it this way, let's say it with, with that pastor alliteration, three things, right? They're waiting for peace, for purpose, and for the presence of God. Had to do it. They're waiting for peace to fill the earth again, for all things to be made right, for their purpose to be restored to them, and for them to be back in the presence of God in his kingdom. And aren't those the same things we're waiting for today? The world is a mess, right? We're waiting for it to be made right. And we keep putting our hopes in all these other things that will fail. We're waiting. We're waiting for 2020 to end. Some of you are waiting for the sermon to end. We're waiting for all the mess of the world, the brokenness to be done away with. Where's our peace? But we're also, we're waiting for our purpose to be restored. Like that's, 
what's, what is the number one question philosophers have talked about for centuries is like, what is the purpose of life, right? But you can Christianize that and we always ask like, what is God calling me to? What's God's purpose for me? What's his plan for me? I just don't know if I feel called to this thing over here. And we're always struggling with that. And listen, that's a valid question because our purpose, the thing God's created us for, has been fractured. So we're waiting, God, would you restore my role as a human made in your image? And ultimately, and if this is not the number one thing we're waiting for, then we're missing it. We are waiting to be restored into the presence of God himself. And that's the picture that we just read in Revelation 21, that God himself comes down and dwells with his people, that he's right there in their midst. And peace is there. There's no more crying. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. And people have their purpose restored. Not only is he their God, they are his people. And you're invited into that. You're invited into that advent, but you're also invited into the hope and the assurance that it will one day for certain come true because God has always been good on all of his other promises all throughout the story. He will return Jesus one day and he will make those things right. Amen? If that's not your hope, I am praying that the spirit would awaken you to that hope this morning. If it is your hope, but you've been distracted and putting it in other things this year, I pray that we would repent from that and turn away from putting our hope in false things and false messiahs and trust in the true one who has come.